Amen. Well, hadn't the music been great this morning? Now you're stuck with me. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans. And I'm not going to sing. <laughs> open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 and 8. We're going to pick up with kind of where we left off last week, but we're going to take a pretty sharp turn in chapter 8 today, so hang on. Buckle up. Keep all hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times. We celebrate today our nation's independence. If you look up the word independence in Webster's Dictionary, you'll hear this. Defined this way. Freedom from the influence, control, or determination of another or others. I believe it was Monday or Tuesday I was driving into work and just listening to talk radio. I know if you're here and you're a teenager, you're kind of thinking, people actually listen to that? Yeah, when you get my age, you listen to talk radio. And, and they were talking about our nation's independence and all that, and the, the main guy said this phrase. He said, you know, the founding fathers established this country to keep religion out of government. And I about swerved off the road, about picked up the phone and called him, and I said, I don't want to do any good. It's exactly the opposite of that. The founding fathers founded this country not to keep religion out of government. They founded it to keep the government out of religion. Big difference. And so we worship today freely. I speak a lot to teenagers, and I, and I, I warn teenagers, you know what? There's coming a day in this country where your freedom of worship may not be there. Because there's places on earth where to worship Christ today could cost you your freedom, your health, or maybe even your life. And we kind of don't think about that a lot. There's a website you could Google. It's the persecuted church. It would probably open your eyes to understand that there are people today who worship in secret. There are some who are now worshiping behind prison walls because of their faith. But I want to turn a corner on that thought and apply it spiritually. And I appreciate the way Tangina started the service off because the title of the message is Celebrate Your Independence. And I mean now that you're now independent. Paul has built a case up through these first seven chapters of the fact that all have sinned. And since some of you haven't been here in previous weeks, let me just clarify what that means. Everybody in this room has sinned. Just in case you thought you were the only one. <laughs> have you ever done that? Have you kind of looked down the row and thought, you know, everybody else looks like they got it together. You know, I'm sure that preacher hadn't sinned in years. Well, let me just bust your illusion. We're all sinners. And Paul's made that case. And then he's made this case. The wages of sin, what you earn from sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the life that you now experience, the life that you can now enjoy, and the eternal life that you'll have forever as a believer did not come about because you perfectly kept the law. Because only one person did. His name is Jesus. And so Paul then sums up in chapter 7, and I'm going I'm to capsulize what he says right before verse 21, then I'm going to read verses 21 and following. 
And there's a lot of debate among scholars over who Paul's talking about. And I'm going to tell you who I think he's talking about. But Paul basically says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, want to, the things I don't want to do are the very ones I end up doing. And you're going to see in this passage where he finally declares, a wretched man that I am. There's some scholars that say he can't possibly be talking about himself because he's a Christian. If you're here this morning and you somehow think once you become a Christian, you never deal with sin issues again, wake up. Sin is still there. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin in this day is still around. So Paul then gets to verse 21. Let me start there with this idea, though, that you've been set free. Look what Paul says. I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. That's a little confusing. If you think that's confusing, read the few verses right before that. It'll get you thoroughly confused. So let's unpack it. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying you've been set free. He said, I understand there's a principle, there's a law at work within me. And that law is e uh, the law of evil, this worthlessness about me is present there, is near at hand. And although I want to do good, and, and in my mind I am joyfully concurring. The word joyfully concurring means I'm rejoicing and agreeing with in myself this law. And Paul ended where we ended last week in chapter 7. Paul said, is the law evil? No, the law's good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. The law had a purpose. The law pointed to the fact that you needed a Savior. Some say that the law was like a school teacher. That every time you tried to obey the law, it pointed out the fact that you could not on your own do that. But Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. So Paul says, I concur with it, I agree with it in my mind, but I see a different law at work within my flesh, within my body. In fact, that different law is waging war, literally to attack or to destroy. Evil is present, Satan is active and at work. If there's any way that Satan can keep you from becoming a Christian, he will. But after you become a Christian, his attack then is to try to rob you of the joy of your salvation, to try to rob you of that experience of peace with God by keeping you reminded of the sins of your past. So he says there's this war. In fact, it's trying to make me a prisoner. It's trying to take me captive. So Paul says there's this conflict going on. Now, in this passage, I don't want you to get this idea that Paul had, had kind of separated that, you know, the, well, the mind over here never has any issues. The body over here is only evil. But truly, the, the war does start right here in the mind. So Paul says, even though I want to do the right thing, even though I agree with the law, I concur with it, I'm joyous about that, there's still this war going on. The law of sin 
is being fleshed out in my body. And then he asked this question. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? I think some people think, well, you know, Paul was a godly man. How could Paul, who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, consider himself wretched? Let me just say this. The closer you get to Christ, the more you realize how wretched you were. I think when we first get saved, we may understand sin, but folks, we don't understand fully the holiness of God. And the longer you walk with God and realize that He is holy, 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 we recognize how much He hates sin. We realize how serious it was that Jesus Christ had to come and die on the cross for us because why? We were helpless. But Paul says there's this war going on. Who will set me free? The word set free was used of a soldier in battle going back to a wounded comrade and picking that comrade up and dry, or, or pulling him out of harm's way. That's what Paul's saying. Who can possibly set me free? And then he uses this phrase. Set me free from this body of death is a better translation. This body of death. Paul was from Tarsus. And one of the things we know about a tribe near Tarsus was this. This was an incredible punishment for, for murder. But here's how they punished murderers in this village near Tarsus. And so Paul was aware of this, and I think that's where the phrase came from. If you killed somebody, they would take the body of the person you killed and lash them to you. And you would be immobilized and tightly lashed to the body of the person you killed until ultimately that body consumed you in death. Now, that's pretty gross, but it would be pretty effective. But I want you to get that picture in your mind. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, sin, I feel like this body has been lashed to me. This, this evil, dying body has been lashed to me. Who will set me free from this? Paul understood, I can't clean the flesh up. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, the body, the flesh is being corrupted. I think sometimes we think, well, I'm going to come to Christ and somehow... somehow I'm going to be able to clean the flesh up. No, what God does is not clean you up from the outside in. God recreates you from the inside out. And so Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? But then he answers this question in verse 25. Thanks be to God. Right, the word he uses there for thanks is the word charis, grace. By the grace of God, not by anything I did, it's because of God. In fact, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So Paul's already said, I feel like there's this war going on, but I'm not warring according to the flesh. I'm not fighting in my strength. For though we war in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So then Paul sums it up. On the one hand, I'm serving the law of God. On the other hand, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. A little bit confusing, but I think the good news comes in verse 1 of chapter 8. And here's where we take the turn. Paul's been talking for the first seven chapters really about justification. 
Justification means this. You have been pronounced innocent in the eyes of God. Big difference in being pronounced innocent and being pronounced not guilty. I explained this a few weeks ago, but just to capsulize, you could be in court. In fact, I was the jury foreman in a case where we pronounced somebody not guilty, but I'm telling you, they were not innocent. Innocent means you never did anything wrong. And so in Christ, it's not just that the gavel falls and says, okay, there's not enough evidence to convict you. You're not guilty. No, in Christ... His righteousness has been substituted for my wickedness. And now in Christ, God pronounces me innocent because of Christ, not because of me. So we turn this corner then. Let me just read these first four verses. Therefore, I believe it's 25 times in this book of Romans, 16 chapters, 25 times Paul says, therefore. And you know the religious cliche, if you see therefore, you're supposed to find out what it's there for. And so it's, that's why I've kind of unpacked those first few verses, to get you to the therefore. Paul, Paul makes a case and then says, okay, on the basis of what I've just taught you, here's what's true. And another phrase he likes to use, in addition to therefore, he'll, he'll say, so that. You're going to see that in this passage as well. But look at these first four verses of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The word therefore is a word used to draw conclusion. It marks a major change in the focus and the flow of these first seven chapters. It sounds like what Paul's just said in verse seven, chapter 7 is condemning himself. Hey, I can't do the right thing, and the, and the things I do is not pleasing to God. It sounds like the gavel ought to fall and say, Paul, you're condemned. But because Paul is in Christ, what does it say? There is now no condemnation. The word condemnation is the exact opposite word of justification. You've been pronounced innocent. You've been pronounced just as if I'd always done everything right. Condemnation is the other side of the coin. Condemnation focuses on the penalty that the verdict demands. What was the verdict? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's the verdict. What you earn, what you deserve because of sin is death. But the good news is that through Jesus Christ we have life. So Paul says there's no condemnation. Stop living under condemnation. You've been set free. The penalty was satisfied at the cross. Understand, there was a penalty for our sin. But Jesus paid it. He met the legal demands at the cross for our sin. That's why Paul can now say, I'm not under a judgment of condemnation anymore. The verdict was pronounced, but the penalty was paid at the cross. So I'm no longer under condemnation. In fact, for those who are in Christ, and I love it, love the word in, a little two-letter word, in, but it means a fixed position. When you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became in Christ. Later on, he's going to talk about the fact that he's in you. 
But at this point, understand, you're now part of the family of believers. You are in Christ. And look at, what, look at the difference that Paul talks about. He said there was this law of evil that led to death. But then there's a law of the Spirit that led to life. And that Spirit has set you free. Imagine being in a battle during the American Revolution and perhaps even being taken prisoner. And then you hear the good news. The war is over. The battle has been won. The prisoners are set free. Bring that back to a spiritual sense. There was a war going on. You were on the opposite side from God. You were captive to sin. But God has conquered sin at the cross. And the doors of your prison have swung open. You have been set free. Now, how ridiculous would it be for those men that signed the Declaration of Independence? How ridiculous would it have been for John Hancock to say, okay, let's go store this document in the National Archives so that people 200 years from now can read it, but let's keep functioning under the King of England. No, they signed a Declaration of Independence and then a war was fought. The United States won the war and they are set free from the King of England. It would have been ridiculous for them to say, okay, we won the battle, we won the war, we've been set free, but we're still going to operate under your dominion. No, but spiritually, that's what some people do. You have been set free and yet we still operate under this cloak of condemnation. Well, who Paul is talking to, he's saying, you, if you're in Christ, you're free. You don't have to go back and play with those old evil things. You don't have to continue to feed the flesh. He said what the law could not do was unable, impossible. Why? Because it was weak. The word weak means feeble. The law was feeble. The law can provoke you to sin and condemn you, but it could not save you. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus? What was his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember Jesus' conversation with him? He said, well, let's talk about the law. And he mentioned a few of the Ten Commandments. You remember what the rich young ruler said? I've kept all that from my youth up. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. The one commandment the rich young ruler couldn't obey was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And it says that he went away grieved. Literally, he went away in pain. It amazes me. In fact, the Scripture actually says, when he heard what Jesus said, his face fell. As a youth pastor, I thought that would make my job a whole lot easier if every time somebody rejected Christ, their face just fell off. Then I could understand, okay, you've obviously rejected Jesus. You don't have a face. It would, it, you know, other people would go and pick your face up and then become two-faced. Maybe that's where that phrase came from. But here's the problem with the rich young ruler. He wanted life, and Jesus offered it to him, and yet he couldn't accept it. Why? Because he loved stuff. In fact, it's the only person in Scripture we see that walked away from Jesus sad. Most people that came to Jesus left rejoicing. Now, some left not accepting what he had to say. But the rich young ruler left in pain. 
Why? Because he still wanted to function under the law. Just tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say this. You can't do enough to inherit eternal life. Inheritance comes because somebody died. In this case, inheritance of eternal life came because Jesus Christ died. And His death applied to your life paid the penalty for sin. You've been set free. So what the law could not do, God did. Sending His own Son. I love what the word sending here. It means to dispatch on a temporary mission. Jesus left heaven. Philippians puts it this way. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung, or held onto, but emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, became obedient even to death, death on the cross. What the law couldn't do, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And because of that, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. There's that word again. We're no longer under condemnation. Guess what is under condemnation? Sin is. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, I'm not condemned, but sin is. The verdict has been pronounced. The hammer has fallen. Sin has been defeated. You say, wait a minute, it's still been defeated. Why why do I still struggle with sin? Because you're like Paul. The penalty was paid, but the presence is still here. Now, one day it won't be that way. One day we're going to see Jesus face to face, and we're all going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But he met the requirement of the law. He did what you and I can't do. We could not meet the requirement of the law. Jesus did. Lived a perfect life. And died a death that paid the penalty for our sins. And in verse 4, he finishes this section by simply saying, He met the requirement so that the law would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The word walk means this. It means habitual life or habit of your life. Before you came to Christ, your habit was sin. The day you come to Christ, sanctification starts happening, and that's what chapter 8 begins to talk about. It's a work in your life where He turns you. You've repented. You've made a 180 turn, and you now walk in a new life. He's already mentioned this, but folks, here's the question you've got to ask yourself. What's my habits? John in 1 John chapter 3 put it this way. It's obvious who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not a child of God. If the habit of your life is ungodliness, then you don't know Jesus. Now, if you come to Christ, you're still going to mess up at times, but here's what God does. He disciplines those whom He loves. You've been set free, but God loves you enough that when we do the wrong thing, He points it out in our life and will discipline us. And sometimes there's even consequences of what we do. So Jesus met the requirement of the law so that we no longer have to walk according to the flesh, but now the habit is to walk according to the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit makes a difference in your life. Let me just put it simply. We've got this issue with the flesh. We've got this issue with the Spirit. And the one that's going to win in your life, the one that will grow in your life is the one that you feed. 
one are you feeding today? Well, y'all get a check mark today because you came to church. One of the ways that we feed the Spirit is to be a part of regular Bible study where you're either studying it on your own, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate that Scripture and apply it to your life, or you're part of Bible study with a group of people, or you're part of a larger group of people on Sundays at a church or whenever your church meets. I read a quote this week that's going to make some of you uncomfortable, but I hope you'll listen to this. It's by Walter Chantry. He wrote a book called God's Righteous Kingdom. And I want you to hear this. I'll probably read it twice because I really want you to, I want you to catch this, and I don't have it on the screen. Sorry. You've you got to pay attention. When preachers speak as if God's chief desire is for men to be happy, then multitudes will pro with problems flock to Jesus. Those who have ill health, marital troubles, financial frustrations, and loneliness look to our Lord for the desires of their hearts. Each conceives of joy as being found in health, peace, prosperity, or companionship. But in search of elusive happiness, they are not savingly joined to Christ. Listen to this sentence. Unless men will be holy, God is determined that they shall forever be miserable. If you are looking for joy and really even happiness apart from Christ, it can't be found. The scary thing is you can find a lot of preachers that will preach that God wants you to be happy. And I think sometimes, what would they have done with Jesus? Jesus who said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. seen churches spend millions of dollars to build pipe organs to worship a homeless man. And I'm not against pipe organs. But if that's the priority of your church, or if that's the priority of your life, is that this is going to make us happy. And you recognize that there are people around the world that are starving to death and dying without the gospel. I just wonder sometimes, aren't our priorities out of whack? So if you had this idea somehow that, you know, God just wants me to be happy. Until you come to Christ, God's satisfied with you being miserable because that's what will drive you to Him. It just got real quiet in here. I'll have the quote at the back door maybe so you can read it for yourself. But let me wrap up then with you're in the Spirit. The last part of this passage. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit is mentioned one time in the first seven verses. I mean, excuse me, the first seven chapters, one time. He's mentioned some 20 times just in these 39 verses of chapter 8. So look at this role now as we begin talking about sanctification. Let me read verses 5 through 11. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the, mind, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
Let me just finish by showing you the work of the Spirit that is mentioned now in the rest of this chapter, chapter 8. The day you came to Christ, a work began in you. The Spirit took up residence in your life and started a work. As Paul's making the difference, if your mind is set on the things of flesh, that's going to lead to death. If your mind is set on the things of God, the Spirit, that leads to life and peace. Life's the opposite of death, but even peace, peace with God. Well, practically, how do we do that? Just look at your day. Look at what you spend your time doing. I know some of you, you got jobs or you go to school or you've got things you have to do. But what, what do you spend most of your time thinking about and talking about and doing? I've had teenagers tell me, you know, I really want to grow in Christ. And well, How much time are you spending in Bible study or in church or with Bible study groups or personal quiet time? The average high school Christian teenager spends five minutes a week reading their Bible. And this scares me. I don't even know that I believe this second statistic, but the average high school student spends about six hours a day watching television. Well, I can promise you that TV is geared to help you focus on the things of the flesh. You're saying, yeah, but I'm watching TV preachers. Well, some of those are scary. And I don't even believe that's what you're doing. And I'm not, I, I'm not telling you you can't watch television, but I'm just saying if your life is more controlled by the things of this world, the things of the flesh, that's what you're feeding. That's where you're setting your mind. Just understand, the end of that is death. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the things of God, how do we do that? One of the ways to do that, hey, pop in a great worship CD. Pop in your iTunes or turn on your iTunes and just worship God. Find time every day to do that. You're setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Read God's Word. If you're saying, I haven't been a Christian that long, I don't even understand it, then get in a Bible study where somebody can help explain what the Word of God means. Feed the things of the Spirit and not just the things of the flesh. Because verse 8, if you like to underline in your Bible, I'd underline verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What does that mean? If you in your own effort think somehow... I'm going to figure this out where I can bring something to God that He's going to be pleased with. Folks, in the flesh, that's impossible. That's why we needed a Savior. If we could somehow get it together and live the Christian life apart from Jesus, then we didn't need Him to die on the cross. The reason He had to, came, the reason he had to come is we couldn't please God. None of our behavior in the flesh, apart from Christ, pleases God. You know what pleases God? Is when as little children, we run to Him. Later on in this passage, it's going to say in, in around verse 15, it says, you haven't been given a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've been given a spirit of what? Adoption. By which we cry out, Abba, Father. Two words. means Daddy, Father. As a dad, Dad, you know, what, what pleases you about your children? Now, it pleases you if they clean their room up. It pleases you if they do the right thing. But, you know, what just pleases me is when my kids want to spend time with me. In fact, I could probably take the messy room 
if I know they love me enough to really want to be around me. In the flesh, you can't please God. But in the Spirit, you do please God. Why? Because as a Christian, you are in Christ. He now sees you like He sees His Son. So if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And here's what's going to happen. This mortal body that's decayed will one day be renewed and the Spirit is going to give life to a brand new body through the Spirit who dwells in you. Last thought is this. The word dwell means to inhabit or really it means to be at home. The day you come to Christ, the Spirit finds a home there. Now, one of the things He's going to do is He's going to take over. And He doesn't want you kind of keeping certain rooms of your home off limits to Him. And some people kind of think, well, that's my church room over there. We're going to keep God in that room. But over here, I'm going to do all the other stuff. No. He's going to want the keys to those doors too. That's part of what the Spirit does in sanctification. And folks, I hope I haven't lost you this morning with some depth from Romans. But here's the good news. If you can't leave with anything else on your mind other than this, you leave thinking, man, there's some depth there. Well, then study. I hope that on Sunday mornings I just whet your appetite to want to study more. But here's what I do want you to see. We celebrate our independence in Christ through this. As a child of God, I'm no longer condemned. I've been set free. And I can now live a life pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and God, thank you that Paul really gets deep in Romans. But God, help us to get it. Don't, don't let us leave here just saying that's too hard for me to understand. But God, your word tells us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So God, I pray that it would pierce the very center of who we are. And God, it would impact our lives. Thank you that we can leave here today free. God, if there's somebody here this morning that still just feels the weight of condemnation on their shoulders, God, I pray today would be the day of salvation. And God, it may be somebody here is a believer, but they live their life still under that cloak of condemnation. God, would you today breathe fresh air into their life to let them know you're no longer condemned. Thank you for that truth in Christ's name. Amen. Now, stand as we sing a close.